Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Our plan is to cover verses 18 to 26. Certainly one of the familiar stories of healing in Matthew's gospel, also in Mark and Luke's gospel as well. It is the desperate faith, I'm titling the sermon, the desperate faith of the ruler and the woman with the issue of blood. The desperate faith of the ruler and the woman with the issue of blood. I'll read the passage for us and then we'll pray. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. This is, again, God's Word. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away, for, this, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes with stories that for many of us are familiar, it can be hard for us to see what's right in front of us. So I do pray that you would refresh us to the desperation of what these individuals in this story are facing and help us to see the glory of Jesus in His way of interacting, what He does, His power, His grace, His humility, His kindness. And God, help us to worship the Lord Jesus afresh. I pray that you would open our eyes to see His glory, His beauty, uh, even now that you would focus us on Him and that we would have the desire to come to Him for all of our needs, but most importantly, our eternal needs the forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll give you the three points for the sermon here as we begin. Uh, number one is a desperate father's faith, verses 18 and 19, a desperate father's faith. Point number two, a suffering woman's faith, a suffering woman's faith, verses 20 and 21. And then point number three, two astonishing healings. Two astonishing healings, verses 22 to 26. So a desperate father's faith, a suffering woman's faith, and two astonishing healings. And just to summarize, I try to sometimes think about how you could put the sermon into just a very brief phrase or sentence. So to boil the sermon down to its simplest form, here's the point. We must bring our desperate needs to Jesus in faith. We must bring our desperation and our needs to Jesus in faith. Now, I will tell you, I'm going to be borrowing from Mark's telling of this story and from Luke's. It's one of those astonishing things, and this is just in the sovereignty of God. This is how God, God did this. As you know, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, synoptic means optic, think of sight or your vision. Sin means similar or same. So, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they have similar uh, stories. They go through similar uh, stories and events in Jesus' life, and they sometimes include or uh, leave out different details and give it from a slightly different camera angle. John is very much more independent and different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we went through John, I don't know, five or more years ago in our church, maybe six years ago. And uh, it's amazing when you compare Mark's version to Matthew. And I say that because while Matthew is, I don't know, perhaps almost twice as long as Mark's gospel, Mark's telling of this story is almost twice as long as Matthew's telling of this story. If you got lost right there, let me try. So Mark's, about, Mark's much shorter than Matthew. But Mark, when he tells this story, spends about twice as many verses telling the same story. So if you want more detail, you can read uh, Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. They will actually tell the story in longer form. And I'm going to be borrowing from their accounts here and there to add some details uh, that, that give us, that flesh the story out a little bit more. I think I told you already a few weeks ago, but Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is not arranging these stories in chronological order. This is not the order in which they happen. He's arranging them thematically according to the theme of Christ's authority. And he's arranged a bunch of stories that show Christ's power and authority over demons, casting them into the herd of pigs, over nature. Who, command, who is this who commands even the wind and the sea and they obey him? That's an amazing authority over nature. What kind of man is this? who can tell a storm to stop. He's also, he has authority to forgive sin, which only God actually has authority to forgive anyone's sin. And Jesus commands, he has that authority, divine authority to forgive sin. Jesus also has the power to heal a leper, uh, to, to heal others in these stories who are, uh, who are disabled in various ways or possessed by demons. And in this story, uh, we are going to see Matthew is going to show us two amazing healings. But Matthew is going to compress the detail, as he does in these chapters, and get right to the main point. Just a matter of interest, maybe you read these kinds of things and you notice them and you, you have a question. Uh, if you look at verse 18, middle of the verse, the ruler came and knelt before Jesus saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Let me just say a word about this. Matthew has compressed the details of the story. Some people call it telescoping. Different people have different names for it. Um, He's compressed the details and shortened the account to emphasize this man's faith. Let me quote Don Carson, who says it better than I could. In Matthew's account, when the man first comes to Jesus, his daughter has just died. In Mark, she is dying. And in Luke, she was dying. Okay, that's the three different accounts. Matthew, having eliminated the messengers who come and update the man that his daughter has actually died in process of Jesus going to the house. Uh, Matthew eliminates that detail as extraneous to his purposes and condenses it so as to present at the outset what was actually true before Jesus reaches the house. So Matthew presents at the outset what was actually true a few moments later, right before Jesus gets to the house, that this man actually finds out his daughter died. So when you flesh out the story in its full form, when this man first comes to Jesus, his daughter is at death's door. She's on the verge of death. He kneels down and asks him to come. Moments later, he finds out his daughter has died, and then the, the, the request transforms into, please still come and now raise her from the dead, and Jesus goes on to the man's house. Um, Matthew will do this in other places where he compresses the detail for the sake of leaving, just to get right to the point. Now, let's, let's look at this man, this ruler. Again, as you look at other gospels, we find out from Mark and Luke that this man was not just any ruler, he was a synagogue ruler. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? As you can note from reading any of the gospels, do religious leaders in the Jewish community tend to get along well with Jesus in the 30s AD, in the late 20s? No, they, they do not. So now you have a man who is not likely to come and kneel before Jesus in reverence, a synagogue ruler. 
Uh, not that all the synagogue rulers were opposed to Jesus, but it is certainly the norm, right? That you would have opposition. So this man is coming from a group that did not normally show respect towards Jesus or reverence towards Jesus. So why did he come? And the answer is obvious. A desperate trial has been placed in his life in the providence of God. A trial that I've never been through, a trial that I cannot imagine going through. Uh, when minor things have happened to my children, I cannot imagine if they get worse. Uh, some of you know with our daughter Maggie, uh, her eyes swell up very large. This is months ago, and we had to take her to Atlanta to a hospital there. And the hours of waiting and not knowing, has this gotten behind her eye? Will this cause permanent damage? What's going to happen? And this, is just, this is just a small one day or a few days event, and the amount of stress and strain it puts on you as a parent is unimaginable. Those who've gone through this, you know exactly what it's like. Even a small thing causes immense stress, and it takes everything in you to say, Lord, I trust you. Help me. I'm in the, I'm in the, we're in the, uh, we're in the waiting room there at the hospital at CHOA at Children's Health Care of Atlanta, and I've got my Bible app out, and I'm reading Philippians 4. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and there's tears in my eyes, and I'm reading it over and over and over again. This is with a relatively minor issue with our two-year-old, okay? Imagine this is your 12-year-old daughter, we find out she's 12 in the other accounts. She, your 12-year-old daughter is dying. This is before modern medicine. This is before modern hospitals. This is before surgery and all these kinds of things. Medicine was very primitive, as you can imagine. Uh, Mark's account says that, uh, you know, you've got, well, just put it this way. The, the medical uh, uh, options before you are very primitive and very limited. Can you agree with that? And so this man is desperate. And this desperation pushes him to come to Jesus, even though it may have been not expected in terms of his rank in society and his position. And what happens? Mark says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. It was the extremity of the trial that took away all his resistance to Jesus and made him desperate for Jesus. He had no doubt heard the miraculous healing abilities Jesus had. He had no doubt heard from many witnesses around his area that Jesus could heal and had healed many, many people, perhaps at this point in the hundreds or thousands of people at this point who've been healed. This is the word on the street. This man is now immediately humbled. He's desperate, and now he is going to go straight to Christ, and he is going to beg him for assistance and help in this moment. You could ask this question to, to you in this room. And I, I wonder, I know a lot of your testimonies and even reading some of you, reading the testimonies this week for the prospective members, isn't it just encouraging to read how the Lord brought people to faith in Christ who are in this room even now? And I know many of your testimonies, not, certainly not all, but for how many of you did your testimony involve a severe trial, a difficulty of some kind? Papa Fred, you've shared your testimony on, on various occasions. If you don't know, Papa Fred uh, went through some extreme trials earlier in his life. And those humbled him, as Fred has shared at different points, just extreme trials, that, that, uh, things I've never been through. And as he went through those trials, he found that the Lord was the solid rock under his feet. And the, he, he came to trust in Christ through two extreme trials in his earlier life. For many of you, I, I would assume that there were difficulties, whether physical difficulties, uh, spiritual agony, emptiness, maybe loss of something in your life. And the extremity of that said, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. I've got to go somewhere. And you knew the only answer. And the only answer is Jesus. I mean, it is interesting how um, even nominally, barely religious people suddenly in those extreme moments do what? They start talking about God and they start talking about Jesus very quickly. 
I'm just I'm watching an interview recently. I won't even go into the details. Watching an interview. From all I know, this family was, I don't think, particularly religious. I can't tell exactly, but they went through a severe trial years ago. And what, what are they talking about? All of a sudden, the mother's talking about Jesus, right? They're talking about God. Why? Because we just, we, I think people just know. When it comes to the extreme issues of life, how many options are there available to help when it comes to death? How many things are actually going to help on the other side of death? And so let us, as Spurgeon said, he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The Lord is good to even work extreme trials for our good. I want to read an extended quote from Spurgeon. Now, I'll grant you, I'm taking this from a sermon on a different healing of a different man in John chapter 4, but it's very similar. I'm going to apply it here. So just listen to this long quote from Spurgeon because I think it is well said. That's what Spurgeon said. In this story, it's another dad who has a sick child. Had this dad, had he been without trial, he might have lived forgetful of his God and his Savior. But sorrow came to his house, and it was God's angel in disguise. It may be, dear friend, that you are in trouble this morning, and if so, I pray that affliction may be the black horse upon which mercy shall ride to your door. It is a sad, sad thing with some men that the better the Lord deals with them in His providence, the worse return they make. Think about that. Sometimes the more gently the Lord deals with us in His providence, and the easier life goes, what? the easier it can be to feel like we don't really need God's help in a desperate way. So often God loves us too much to allow wonderful, pleasant circumstances to come our way. Sometimes He loves us enough to bring about the difficulty, the trial, to alert us to our need of Him. Spurgeon says, on the other hand, there are hearts that turn to the Lord when He smites them, when they drift into deep waters, when they can scarcely find bread to eat, when sickness attacks their bodies, and especially when their children are smitten. Then they begin to think of God and better things. Blessed is the discipline of the great Father in such a case. It is well for the troubled if their tribulation bruises their heart to repentance, and repentance leads them to seek and find pardon. It was so with this man. He was brought to Jesus by trouble, brought to Jesus by anxiety about a child. I have it strongly upon me at this moment that I am speaking to certain persons who are not converted but they have come hither, they've come to church today, he would say, because they are in great sorrow. Possibly a dear little one is pining away and their hearts are crying to God that if possible, the precious life may be spared. In the house of prayer, they feel somewhat comforted, but their hearts are ready to break because of the loss they so much dread. How much I pray our Lord to make this trouble a means of great grace. Well, let me apply this not physically to physical trials, but let me put it this way, and I, I think we can, we can grasp this. Again, speaking to parents for a moment here, let's let the spiritual deadness of our children upon birth be what draws us to Jesus in desperation. Uh, no child is born a Christian, and when our children come into this world, they need to know Jesus. That is their fundamental and number one need. And let us not just let physical trials drive us to the Lord of grace, let us let the ultimate spiritual need of our children and our helplessness ultimately to change their heart uh, I mean, you know this, right? You can apply this. If you don't have children, you can apply it to friends or people you care about, uh, family members that you love. You, you know what it is like to feel completely helpless to change the heart of someone you love. Don't you know what that experience is like? Remember one dad talking about going to have pizza with one of his sons, and they would meet regularly, and they would sit down for their pizza, and they'd sit, sit together, and he said, 
the dad would say, I, I just want to express to you one more time, son, because his son was beginning to fall away from the faith. He said, son, I just want to tell you one more time what Jesus did. He says, you start explaining to them the glories of Christ, and what do you see in their face? He says, you see a dullness in the eyes, a glossing over, a complete blankness of expression on their face. He says, what more horrifying feeling is there? And you want to cry out. He said, I, he said, he and his wife have shed more tears and prayed more prayers over the salvation of their children than over anything else in their lives. Because when you see the need in front of you and you know you cannot ultimately change the heart, it makes you desperate for Jesus. You say, Lord, you can do this. You can break through any calluses. I don't care if this person is an adult. I don't care if this person is later in life. If they have been numb to you, callous to you their whole life, turned off to you, every time Jesus is brought up, they become angry in the conversation. They want nothing to do with it, bored by it, angered by it. Can God still break through the most calloused heart? Yes, He can. And so let us take our desperation to the Lord in prayer and beg Him to show mercy to us and to regenerate those we love and those we care about in a state of spiritual deadness. That's point number one. A desperate father's faith. Let's, let's move to point number two, a suffering woman's faith, verses 20 and 21, a suffering woman's faith. So right now, Jesus is following this man to his house, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and on his way, he's interrupted. Now, now before I even read the verse, let me just say this to you as you read it. Think about from the father's perspective how much you're confused by Jesus' timing right now. We're going to read in a second. He's interrupted on the way to his house to save his daughter's life, to restore his daughter's life. And Jesus stops and begins a conversation with someone else. So let's, let's read. Verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, that's the same age as the daughter, 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Well, before addressing this woman, I want to say one more thing about Jairus. You can understand the feeling of intense frustration you would have toward Jesus perhaps right now. I mean, maybe that you wouldn't struggle with that. I think the temptation would be, Jesus, there is a desperate need in front of you, a dying on the verge of death. My daughter, she's right here, and you're going to stop and deal with a woman who's had an issue for 12 years? She can wait, right? She can wait a little bit too long. She can wait a few hours and you can deal with her in just a minute. This is no time for being sidetracked or detoured. We have an urgent case of life or death right in front of us and you want to stop and talk to a woman who's had an ailment for over a decade. She'll be here tomorrow, okay? We, we can deal with her soon. So, so here, here's what we've got to know. We've got to know Jesus' timing is always perfect even when it does not make any sense to us. Jesus' timing is always perfect even when it makes no sense to us. Listen, there are times in our lives where we are agonizing for the Lord to move ahead and to make something come about, and we are desperate. And the Lord says to us, out of love, but maybe we're confused, He says, not now or not yet, and we have to wait. And the, the timing may not make any sense to us emotionally. We think, Lord, I need this now. Please help me now. And the Lord says, you've got to trust my timing. You know the quote, even when we cannot trace His hand, we trust His heart. I don't quite know why the Lord is delaying that answer to prayer that you have right now. Because my guess is virtually everyone in this room has a delayed prayer right now, right? Think about the prayers that are being prayed in this room in private, maybe in public, whatever it is you may be prayed for this week. There, there is probably an area in your life right now where you're saying, Lord, there is a good thing that I desire. I believe it will be honoring to you, and I would desire that this be part of my life, and I want to honor you with it. And so far, the Lord has not given that answer to prayer as you would wish, 
And here's what we've got to do. We've got to look at the Lord through the lens of the cross, which Scott just described to us. Do we know that He loves us because of Golgotha and Calvary? Yes, we know that He loves us because He gave His Son. So can we trust His timing because He knows far more and is aware of far more than we do? We know point zero 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 one percent of what's going on, probably less than that. God knows exactly what's going on. And God is doing things in your life and in other people's lives that you, would, you could not imagine what the Lord is up to. Remember, is it Habakkuk who says, uh, I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if you were told, Habakkuk. I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if I told it to you. If I described it to you, you'd have a hard time believing God was actually doing what he's doing. And so we've got to trust his heart when we cannot trace his hand. And this man is forced to wait while Jesus deals with a different situation. So this woman, the suffering woman's faith, let's look at what's happening here. So as you can probably tell, and as commentaries discuss, this woman had a 12-year chronic bleeding from the womb. And let me say a couple things about her and the young woman coming after this. Both of them would have been considered ritually unclean in the Old Testament law. So uh, let me read from a couple verses here that don't get read very frequently, but Numbers 19, starting in verse 11, says this, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. That's touching a dead body. You've got to be ritually cleaned if that happens, and you've got to be able to restore yourself so that you can worship at the tabernacle. How about the issue of blood? Leviticus 15, starting at verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and whoever washes his clothes and shall bathe himself in water will be unclean until evening. Now, let's take this seriously. First of all, let's, let's be clear. Whenever we quote Numbers in Leviticus, we're not going to make fun of God's Old Covenant law. If we were living in the Old Covenant, Paul says God's Old Testament law was holy, righteous, and true. There's nothing to make fun of about Old Testament law. I don't like that when Christians start joking about it. It's not a joke. This is God's righteous law. It served a purpose in its time in redemptive history. We are no longer under the Old Covenant law, but it is still God's very law. So let's hear what we have to see here. If this woman was single when this issue began, with the issue of blood, this began when she was single, then for 12 years she would be unable to get married. She would not be able to get married in this state. If she was married and, and had had children, she would have a physical distancing, a, a, a very much a physical distancing between her and her husband and her children. Would she be able to hold her children if she had children? Would she be able to be around them and, and, and be with them in the same way? No. Uh, it would not quite be like a leper, but it would be moving in that direction. Everything you touch, everyone you come in contact with makes them ritually unclean. They have to bathe and do certain things to become ritually pure again so they can worship before the Lord. This is going to radically change her life. Everything about her life is different. For 12 endless years, it affects her children, her, her husband, or if she's single, it affects all of what could happen in the future. So this is, a, this is a serious trial. This is not a small thing that this woman is undergoing. And you know where she is? She is in the midst of a dense crowd. Is she supposed to be touching up against people in a dense crowd in Old Covenant Judaism? No. She's not supposed to be there. And she, she knows that. She's trying to conceal her identity, right? And if you read in the other Gospels, we get a little more information that she, she comes sneaking up behind Jesus, right? If I can just touch the edge of the garment, I can be healed. And we'll see more about that in just a moment. Let, let, me, let me add this as well. In case we think this idea of clean and unclean 
has no application to our lives today. Because you say, what? You know, we don't have to worry about ritual impurity today. There's no unclean food in that sense. And th- these, these kinds of laws are, are, are not what we're bound by today. Jesus does something amazing. If you have your Bible, flip to Matthew 15, just a few pages to your right. Matthew 15. And we won't read the whole section, but look at verse 18. Jesus is sort of reframing the conversation about purity. And he says something that is relevant to every single one of us. Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. I'll start. Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, makes you unclean. Verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying purity still matters, but now I'm moving it into the category of your heart and sin. And Jesus says, if you want to understand what real defilement is, especially in the new covenant era, what defiles you is not eating pork like it would have in the old covenant. What defiles you is sin. And where does sin come from? It's not about what you eat, what you, what you put in your mouth and chew, as he says. No, it's what comes out of your mouth. And what comes out of your mouth comes out of your heart. And what comes out of human beings' hearts, man's heart? This list of sin. Anyone in this room guilty of evil thoughts? Who has lived a day without evil thoughts in this room? Since you woke up this morning, my guess is at some point today, you've entertained evil thought of some kind. You may have had it come and you may have fought against it immediately, but if we're being honest with ourselves, evil thoughts is the flesh is always spitting these things up into our mind and we have to fight against them. There's also flaming darts from the evil one, but we don't even need Satan to help us in this. We've got plenty of problems with our own flesh and our flesh is always coughing up evil thoughts. And what else does he say? Well, these could include murder, adultery, immorality, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. That's what defiles us. Now listen, we are all impure in this sense, aren't we? This is not like the bad people are over there and the good people are over here and we're in the good people group. No, 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 no. Who's in the group of defiled people here? The entire human race. Fallen in Adam, condemned in Adam. Who are we? We are wicked to the core upon birth. And Jesus says, if you want cleansing, if you want purity, don't think right now in terms of a ritual bath. Think in terms of my atoning work on the cross that's coming. I can cleanse you. I can forgive you. I can purify you. I can transform you. And I can give you grace to fight these things by my grace, for my glory. But we're just as desperate as this woman. We are more desperate than this woman. We should be to come to Jesus and say, Lord, help. I need you to help me transform what is wrong with my heart. So, so let me mention here, Mark in chapter 5 mentions this. You can go back to Matthew 9. In Mark's version, he says this, She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. You hear that? She suffered under many physicians, doctors. I mean, I read, it's, it almost makes you laugh. I read uh, some old rituals of what doctors would do with these kinds of things. And it's, it's nonsense. You know, get a certain kind of drink and mix in some leaves and mix it together and drink it and everything will be great. It's like, I don't think that's how this works. There were three different cures for what this woman could have done or been asked to do. And you look at it now and you think it's just, it's just, it's ridiculous. What, what were some of the rituals that they would try to do to heal you a physical ailment? Because they did not know what to do. So this woman had spent all that she had on doctors and was no better, but only grew worse. And 
I don't want to make this a stretch, but I have to think that there has to be some application here in a more spiritual sense. We can try to fix ourselves through every method other than Jesus, and we will find that we will spend all we have, and we will end up worse, not better. Right? You can go to the self-help section at a bookstore. Those things get bigger every week. Self-help section. Those two words should not go together, okay? Uh, so it's self-help section, and it'll give you all these tips of how to make your life better, better, more productive time management, how to work in a relationship with boyfriends and girlfriends, how to work in marriage to make your marriage better, how to be a better dad or a better mom, how to be a better employee, and it'll give you endless tips of advice, but does it give you the fuel to transform you, the motivation to honor the Lord, and does it actually give you forgiveness when you fail? No, you cannot help yourself become forgiven. You cannot help yourself have a new heart. You can't do that. You're entirely powerless to do that. And what, what less popular, less American thing can I possibly say right now than to say, you can't do it. You can't. You cannot fundamentally change the greatest need in your heart. You can't do it. You can try all you want. You can get all the books. You can read all of them, write out your notes. You can try to do everything you can to manipulate and jury rig your heart so that you think you're going to improve things. And all you'll find yourself doing is trading one idol for another and one sin for another. That's what you're going to find yourself doing. So you'll say, okay, I shouldn't be, let's say, pick a sin. I, I shouldn't be, um, just pick a, like drug abuse. Let's say someone's got a drug addiction issue. They, I, I'm going to get rid of that. And the way that they choose to do it is they want a better reputation with their friends and with their peers, and they want to be thought of as a better person. So they trade the addiction of looking for pleasure in drugs with looking for pleasure in approval. So yeah, they stopped using drugs 10 years ago, but what's their fuel? Their fuel is another God, people, people's approval. The self-help, all it does is give you different idols to mix around, and it will never actually get you anywhere. You can spend all you have, and you're going to end up worse off, not better. And this woman tried every doctor. Nothing made her better. She only ended up worse. But li listen to this. Again, I'm borrowing from Mark's gospel. She had, I love this, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She had heard the reports about Jesus. That's why she came. She had heard about Jesus from others. Again, how did, how did any of us come to Christ? I mean, I, I have heard the rare story. In fact, uh, Jerry told me this story, I think it was, a long time ago. You knew a guy who was in a hotel room. Is this right? And he got the Bible out of the, the, the Gideon's Bible. Was in the, uh, it was in the little, you know, whatever you call it, the bedside table. He pulled it out and he started reading the Bible and he became a Christian just reading the Bible, which is an amazing story. I, I love that story, the power of God's word to just save someone. And that, that can happen, no doubt about it. Uh, we're, we're so thankful for Bibles and resources that can be out there in the world. But for most of us, didn't someone tell us about Jesus? Didn't someone get into our life and explain about Jesus? Wasn't it the transformed life of the people around you? Think about this, this lady, 12 years she's suffering, no answers. She's growing worse after spending all her money on doctors. And guess what she starts saying? The reports come in, my brother was just healed by this man, Jesus of Nazareth. My cousin was healed by Jesus of Nazareth. There was a man who was possessed by demons in this town over here. The demons were cast out. He was restored, redressed in his right mind because of Jesus of Nazareth. And you hear one story after another. And then maybe someone who was formerly ill at the point of death comes to this woman and says, look, I myself was sick. I was on the verge of death and Jesus healed me. That Jesus of Nazareth healed me. You've got to go see this man. Was it the transformation and the report of others that led her to seek help in him? Yes. And let us see the significance of our role in other people's lives. It's those two things. It's your transformed life 
and it's your testimony and you're speaking the truth about Jesus to others that will witness to them of the truth of what you say. And I'll tell you what's even better is corporate witness. If, if an unbeliever can get around one Christian, that's awesome. But if an unbeliever can be invited to be around 10 Christians who are all committed to Christ and all have different gifts and abilities and talents and different, different, different things, One's hus- one has hospitality as a gift, one is maybe in a, more into apologetics, one is more into sharing the gospel boldly, and they all get together with, with the Christian. Oh my goodness, now you're seeing the transformation across multiple people, many different witnesses, and now the evidence is stacking up. Jesus really can still change people's lives today. I need to go to him. I, I need to seek help from him. Uh, we had the men's breakfast yesterday morning, uh, which was wonderful. If you go on our YouTube channel, Jose Rodriguez's testimony is on there. You can watch it or listen to it on the podcast. I highly recommend it. It was really encouraging to hear from Jose, who was a member here a few years ago, and they moved away. And uh, what does Jose say? You've heard it many times, I'm sure, if you've been around. He's working in his lab at UGA. Manuel Fierro used to be a member of our church before they moved. Manuel's in the lab. And what the first thing that he noticed about Manuel, he did not gossip about other people in the lab. He had atheist, agnostic friends who would gossip and make fun of people when they weren't there, talk bad about people. Manuel never did that. That was the opening door to say something's different about this guy. Manuel shares about the gospel and invites him to our church. He starts coming to our church, and over time, through a various host of things, he said in his testimony, he was sitting on the front row, I still remember, he was sitting right here, uh, where I normally sit. He was sitting right up here on the, at the front of the church, and uh, Ephesians, was being, Ephesians 1 was being read uh, from, the, from the pulpit, and he broke down in tears and became a Christian sitting right there. And that's what he shared yesterday morning. How incredible is that? But you know what was involved? Manuel's transformed life and his bold testimony led to all that happening. And so let's be emboldened to say, like to this woman, let's share about Christ with others and see what the Lord may do. All right, the third point, final point, the two astonishing healings. Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, the only person Jesus ever calls daughter in the New Testament. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Let me just say a word about this. Let me read Mark's account. Again, more details. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing about you, and yet you say, who touched me? Luke tells us Peter was the main one speaking there, which should not surprise you. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You see, faith comes empty-handed, desperate, knowing only Jesus can help, and you pour out 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 before him. She eventually comes clean and lays out her need before him, and she experiences the full restoration of of the Lord Jesus. Let's continue here. Verse 23, the, the, the girl who has died, who's 12. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose and the report of this went through all that district. So I read about this and Numerous people talk about this. Even the poorest family, when this would happen, a death would happen, they would hire two flute players and at least one uh, loud mourner. So in this culture, the mourning would be very much expressed. I know in 
Western society, typically it's stiff upper lip, you kind of suppress emotion, but in this society, no, you let, it, you let the emotion out fully, so you would hire people to come play sad music, like a dirge at a funeral, and then you would have, a, usually it was a woman who would be mourning in a very loud way, and that's, that's who this group is standing right outside at the house when Jesus gets there, and Jesus says to her, you guys need to go away. You need to go out of the room, step outside. She's not dead, she's only sleeping. And it says they laughed at him. This shows you, by the way, they're not really grieving. They're hired grieving because they laugh immediately. They're not really grieving. They're hired help, okay? They're, they're, grie- they're grieving only as a profession, basically. But they laugh at him. I-, I thought about this some this week. I do think one of the things we resist the most is saying truth about Jesus publicly that's going to make us look stupid to the world. Jesus says something he knows is going to be, res- he knows what's going to happen when he says this. They're going to laugh at him. They're going to mock him to scorn, I think the King James says. They they, they mock at him. They they make fun of what Jesus says. Yeah, she's only sleeping. She's dead. We know she's dead. We were hired to come. This is basically a funeral procession that's beginning. We're beginning grieving for her death. She's definitely dead. Don't talk nonsense like she's asleep. They mock him. Now, yes, that will change in just a moment, but, but, but understand this. If we are going to speak boldly the truth for Jesus, we've got to be ready for the fact that people are going to laugh at what we're going to say because it sounds too incredible. You're telling me a virgin got pregnant. She gave birth to a man who was God. And he lived a perfect life, so they killed him. They put him in a borrowed tomb. He came back to life. Not something you see very often. He went to heaven, and he's coming back on a white horse, sword coming out of his mouth. Laughable. You can't be a thinking person and believe that. That's the kind of stuff Richard Dawkins still says. You can't be a science-minded person and believe people come back from the dead. This is ludicrous. This is mythology. I want you to know. When we stand with Jesus, we are standing on the side of truth, but we are going to receive mockery. It's going to happen, and we've got to be secure in Christ enough to know, look, I love you enough to tell you the truth, even if initially you don't respond well, but by the end of this story, these people are going to be changing their tune entirely. When they see this woman come out, this girl come out of the room alive, they are going to be astonished. Look with me here at uh, verse, uh, verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and shook her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went throughout the whole district. Mark adds what Jesus said. Talitha kumi, little girl, literally, it's basically, girl, little girl, it's time to get up. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Almost like waking up this girl from a nap. Jesus reaches out, takes her hand, says, Talitha kumi, it's time to get up, girl. She stands up, she rises up, and he tells her, give, him something, give her something to eat. Jesus takes care of even her physical need at that moment, is what we're told in Mark's gospel. I'm cutting out stuff. I'm trying to get to the end here, so just hang on a second. I'm cutting out some things, so I'm choosing. Um, all right, I, I'll, I'll close with this. We, we, I want to move to the Lord's table here, and, and I want to close on a couple of things here. Um, According to Old Testament law, both of these women were unclean, and to touch them would make what? It would make you unclean too, right? Now, just think about this. Jesus is the only person in history at this point who can walk in, and there is a woman with an issue of blood who's been unclean for 12 years. Everything she touches turns unclean. Everyone she touches turns ritually unclean. She washes up. She walks up, no doubt jostling people in the crowd. She reaches out and touches Jesus' garment. Right now, what should happen? Jesus should become unclean. That's not what happens, because when Jesus arrives, the defilement does not pass to Jesus, 
Instead, cleansing passes from him to her. She's restored to full health. She's no longer unclean. She's clean. This is what happens when you come in contact with Jesus. A little bit later, he shows up at the house. This girl is dead. You don't touch dead bodies. You don't do that in Judaism because you're going to become unclean. Jesus walks up. What does he do? He takes her by the hand. You can almost picture someone in the room saying, Jesus, don't do that. You're going to become unclean. Jesus says, no. He reaches out, takes her hand, and instead of him becoming unclean, she becomes alive again. She's restored. She wakes up from her sleep of death. She opens her eyes. She stands up. She begins walking around. The parents are no doubt astonished at what's happening. We're also told some of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and others, uh, are, are there in the room. They're astonished by what they see. Can't believe what they see. This reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord on the throne, do you remember what he says? Woe is me, my man of what? Unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then what does the Lord do? The Lord says, no doubt signaling to an angel. The angel goes, takes a live coal with tongs from the altar, brings it, and touches his lips. And this is one of the only other times in the Bible that an object touches something unclean, and instead of it becoming unclean, it transfers cleanness to the person. See, that object should have become unclean, but it didn't. It touches his mouth, and what happens? The cleanness spreads to Isaiah, and what does the Lord say? Behold, this has touched your lips, your unclean lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The table before us is telling us this, the uncleanness in our heart, the, the impurity in our heart, the moral depravity in our heart cannot be dealt with any way except by contact with the living Christ. And when we come into contact with Him by faith, when we reach out to Him by faith and we receive Him empty-handed by faith, He doesn't become unclean. He took all of our sin and took it into the grave and He absolutely got rid of it, cast it away, and instead now we are transformed, we are forgiven, we are made righteous in Christ, we are made clean. He does not become unclean. And this table here, these are symbols of that act. Uh, we don't think that they, they have any sort of magical power, but we want to say if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would not invite you to these elements. What you need is not the symbol, you need the reality. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I would ask you even right now to call out to Him in desperate faith like these individuals do and say, Lord, help me. I cannot change myself. I cannot bring forgiveness. You can restore me. You alone can make me clean. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you, have, you are not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, then in just a moment you may come forward when I'm done praying and take of these elements and return to your seat. And as you partake of them, uh, be reminded of what Christ has done on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Let me get the wording correct here. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then there's a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me bow, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Lord, I want to pray for a specific person first here, um, and this is probably all of us to some degree. Lord, I pray for the person right now listening who has a distorted view of himself or herself, and who thinks that the need that they have for you is limited, 
small, not desperate, not a matter of eternal life and death, that they basically are a good person or that their sin is not that serious and it doesn't run that deep and they've tried to live a good life. God, I pray that you would shatter that false understanding of self-righteousness and that you would reveal the depths of the defilement of our heart. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, greed, all these sins, slander. God, show us the depravity in our heart, in our indwelling flesh. And God, I pray that you would help us to call out in desperation. We need your blood and righteousness. We need you to cleanse us from sin and to make us new. We need you, God, to transform us so that we love what we should love and we hate what we should hate and our values and our, and our affections are transformed by your truth and by who you are. And God, make us desperate day in, day out to come to Christ with desperate faith, bringing all of our needs before you, knowing that you alone are the answer to whom we look. Be with us now, Lord, as we come forward for the Lord's table. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.